0: Heading into the Book of James, actually, we uh, we cracked the cover last week, and I want to continue on this week. How many of you remember as kids playing the Desert Island game? Remember the Desert Island game? You don't remember the Desert Island. Okay, if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only take one book with you, what would that book be? Now you're in church, so if you don't say the Bible, you're going to lose points. So I understand. Got to say the Bible. Well, let's take the Bible off the table. If, it was, if we could have any other book besides the Bible, with the Bible, what would it be? <laughs> oh, Spoken like my wife. Yeah, the fifth way. That's my book. Thank you, honey. So sweet. <laughs> well played, dear. It's almost Christmas. No, we did not. <laughs> uh, uh, that's funny I don't know Lord of the Rings what would it be any suggestions what's that Tuesdays with, Tuesdays with Maury. Maury that would be the Desert Island book any others oh wait one at a time what was that one The Account of Monte Cristo Ooh, that's a good one. what was the other one Works of Shakespeare how to get off the island <laughs> oh, you guys, this is going to be fun this morning, I can tell you. Yeah, how to get off the. Yeah, and then it was like, okay, if you could take one album with you, what would the one album be? You know? <laughs> Not bad a choice right there. Yeah. So, then when we go through and the best the favorite song and so on and so forth. So, why am I doing this with you? Because, you know what? If you had to take one book out of the Bible, because you know the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is 66 books, right? If you could take one book out of the Bible on your desert island with you, what would it be? Come on, the Baptist has to have an opinion. He wants Matthew. Anyone else? What's that? John. Proverbs. James. Okay. If anyone says Leviticus. <laughs> Yeah, if anyone says Leviticus, uh, let's talk afterwards, okay? Because, uh, yeah, you've got something definitely going on, some issues. That's it. You know, if I had a desert island book, if I had to pick, I can't pick one, but if I could pick two books out of the Bible that I would take with me on the desert island, I cheated. Okay, well, the first one would be Matthew, and the second one would be James. And there's no coincidence there. Matthew and James are the most Jewish books of the New Testament. In fact, most scholars believe that Matthew probably was written originally in Hebrew or Aramaic and then translated into Greek, as opposed to most of the other books that went the other way around, most likely. And James, if it wasn't written in Hebrew, it was certainly written to the Hebrews. And it's written with that Jewish sensitivity, that Jewish sensibility, that Jewish worldview. And so is Matthew. That's why they're so hard to understand. That's why they're so hard for us to process. It just doesn't work so well for us because they're coming from this other worldview and we're trying to fit these thought forms and, and these these ideas and these concepts in, into our lives today and our heads today. Leonard Sweet had a really great way of putting it. He talked about the content and the container. Nina read a little bit about the container and, and, and the content this morning but the idea is is that the gospel is like water. you know, It is what it is. But you can pour it into any container, and it takes the shape of whatever container you pour it into. And so in the first century, as it's leaving Jesus' lips, he's pouring this message, this liquid message, into the containers of the people that he's talking to. And then in their container, they understood it, and they lived it a certain way, and they expressed it a certain way in these 27 books of the New Testament. And we read them now. But we read them frozen in their container, in the shape of their container. And then we try to take that shape and jam it down the throats of our people, and it doesn't work so well. What we need to do is hold on to that container, let it melt, become liquid again, so we can pour it into our containers, pour it into the shape of our lives, the shape of our culture, and see what we can do with that. The content doesn't change, it's water. But it can be infinitely poured into infinite containers and it can take those shapes and it can inform those lives and it can move people in the directions that they need to go. But we have to separate the content from the container in order to do that. And so here's the catch, you know, if we're going to understand what Matthew and James are saying, we first have to understand the container into which they were poured so we can extract the content and then pour it back into our containers. And this has bedeviled the church for 2000 years. The Sermon on the Mount, which is the centerpiece of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, was probably an early catechism. It's what most scholars believe. Because what is said there in this one section, this one Sermon on the Mount, that implies that it was all done at one time, those same sayings are scattered throughout the book of Luke in various locales and and, uh, circumstances. And so they were probably, Jesus' sayings were probably recorded as he was saying them, as people remembered them, as possibly that they were written down. And then they were used in this concentrated form for new converts and for children coming into the fold. To teach them what is going on. And most scholars also believe that James, the book of James, is probably also an early catechism because it functions in much the same way. It's this concentrated, you know, work that just lays out so succinctly and in, in such a certain order that it makes its own kind of sense as it goes. And it really lays out the attitudes and the way of living life if you're going to follow Jesus. These followers of the way had these two books at their disposal. And then decades later, a generation later, they were incorporated into what we call the Gospels now, probably later on in the century. And so it's interesting as you take a look and you, and you break down the text and you look at what scholars have to say, are they right? I don't know, but it makes a lot of sense because if you just know what is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you know everything you need to know about Jesus. The rest is kind of commentary, you know. It really gives you this way of living life and it makes the cross make sense. It makes the Passion Week make sense. It makes everything he does and everything he, everything he says make so much sense if you understand what he's talking about right there. And the same thing is going to happen to us with James, you know, They don't give us theology, they're very practical, they're very down to earth. They're dealing with day-to-day lives and how to live them and how to choose and how to deal with difficulties, how to deal with marriages, how to deal with finances, all the things that we deal with every single day, you will find in these books, in the Sermon on the Mount and in James. Now I normally don't do verse-by-verse studies you probably noticed that. I normally don't take books and go through them. And there's a reason for that. I tend to, tip to be more topical. I'll take a topic and then I find the scriptures that work for that. Because I've went through a lot of verse-by-verse studies, going book-by-book. And a lot of times what they tend to do is they, they comment on the book and they take us through what they mean and they give us the original context. But they don't always apply them to the current context. They don't always come in for a landing and show us exactly what's the relevance here. How does this work? You know, what? what is it that really impacts my life? Now, the Sermon on the Mount is an exception and James is an exception because they're already applied. They're already practical. There is no theology here. There's no highfalutin ideas. It's just dealing with life. And so to go through verse by verse, almost every verse, i are not going to hit every single one of them, can really give us the shape of this journey. It can give us the shape of what we're trying to do. But the catch is, if we're going to understand it, we have to look at it through Jewish eyes. Ancient Hebrew eyes. Because if we don't do that, we are going to misunderstand. We're not going to be able to get there where we want to go. So we're going to look at James this way. Last week, we hit the first two verses. That's all we did. We're going to try to hit a few more this morning. And, um, and we're going to look at it through Jewish eyes. We're going to try to make this, this turn. We're going to try to make this connection here that, uh, that is so essential. James, as we talked about last week, if you weren't here, James is uh, described as the brother of Jesus, which caused a lot of consternation in the church because they believed that Mary was a perpetual virgin, but since there is no word for cousin in Aramaic or Hebrew, he could have been a cousin, he could have been this, he could have been that. The point is, he was very closely related to Jesus. And because of that, he had a special place and a reverence in the people's heart. And because he was who he was, he was a permanent Nazarite, meaning he was dedicated to God for his entire life. They made him the Nazi, the president, the leader, the overseer of the Jerusalem church after Jesus' ascension. After Jesus was off the scene, James was placed in that position, and he was there for 30 years until he too was martyred by stoning. And so Jesus had three years shepherding the people, James had 30 years shepherding the people. And even though he is practically unknown in the West, he definitely superseded Peter in terms of his authority and in terms of leading the church. But we don't talk to him. We don't see him much in the West. And uh, you know there's a reason for that. There was a lot of anti-Semitism in the West. And so James being such a Jewish book, it was kind of relegated. The church didn't understand the Sermon on the Mount, had trouble with it, over-literalized it, Didn't know what to do with sayings like that seemed to equate, you know, actual adultery and just looking at a woman with lust, murder and just having anger in your heart. How do you deal with that on an institutional basis? The Quakers misunderstood, and when Jesus said to turn the other cheek, they launched into an institution of pacifism. And when Jesus said, don't swear, They wouldn't take an oath and they wouldn't serve military service and they wouldn't sit on juries because they wouldn't take an oath. And that had nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about. But from that Jewish perspective, it's so hard for us to understand as Westerners. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, at the time of the Reformation, wanted to have the book of James banned from the Bible. He called it the Epistle of Straw. And it was because one of the bulwarks of the uh, Reformation was sola fides, which means faith alone is what saves. And here's James saying, faith without works is dead. So what are you going to do with that? You know. But Luther and James were not at odds. They were not contradicting each other at all. They just misunderstood. All right. We want to try to understand this as we go through. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens with the Beatitudes. You probably heard them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the peacemakers, and so on and so forth. What Jesus is doing there is giving us a picture of the finished product. He's opening with what it looks like to live in kingdom. What are the attributes? Who are these people? And then he breaks it down afterwards, redefines the law, redefines righteousness from the point of view of the the Jews themselves. And then in chapter 7, he wraps it up and applies it to the way that we can live our lives. In the opening of James, James is doing something similar. He's trying to answer the biggest questions of life. He's opening up the funnel really large. He's going to start from the big 30,000-foot view and look at these basic existential questions, and then he's going to bring it in and bring it down into the details, from the general to the specific. And he's really looking at those big questions of life. He's looking at what is it that really drives human beings? You know? What is the compulsions that drive us? How do we deal with these things? I mean, take a look, once again, even though we did it last week, take a look at James 1, verses 3 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's talking about endurance there. But what he's really dealing with is accepting life on life's terms. Life is difficult. We read that section from Scott Peck last week. Life is difficult. I remember a friend asking me when we were talking about this, but why does it have to be so difficult? Why does it have to be so difficult? I remember this song by uh, Simon Garfinkel, Paul Simon. Why am I so soft in the middle when the rest of my life is so hard? I always liked that line. Why does life have to be so hard? You know, Ultimately, there's no answer for this. There's not going to be any rational answer that you can just say. We tried. We went. We went through some things. We talked about love needing to be a complete and free choice. And how do you know that our choice, that God gave us this complete and free choice? It's because people are choosing not love. People are choosing not God. Much of the evil and the evil things that happen to us, and the trials and and things that we have to deal with, are. A, as a result of the choice of others or the choices that we make ourselves. But that's not really satisfying too much, is it? Especially when the pain is really deep, when the suffering is really grave. That rational answer really doesn't help so much. Last week we talked about, in the last two weeks, we were talking about suffering and trying to say, how does suffering function in our lives? Why is it really there? We talked about the Paschal Mystery Jesus descending in death into the grave and then raising again uh, to, to new life. And that shape is the shape that Jesus portrays, but it recurs over and over. It's a motif in scripture. And so we see that shape and we understand in the church, early church understood there always had to be a descent before an ascent. And the descent was triggered by suffering, by something that hit us hard enough to put us into some sort of mourning, to put us into grief, to move us into the descent where everything is stripped away and we can actually see what life really is without the luxury of being able to paper it over with that facade that we so often do, without the luxury of being able to just listen to the voice in our heads that is telling us something that may or may not have anything to do with reality as it is, but in the descent, when all that is stripped away, when it gets really quiet... At the bottom of the dog pile, we see something else that leads us into the ascent. But even that is not going to be too convincing or comforting when the storm's really hit. Because ultimately, the answer to this is experiential. It's not intellectual. We can't think our way through it. We have to live our way through this. And that's the problem that we're dealing with here. Maybe you could try to imagine a world without challenges, A world without any sort of pain at all. A world without any suffering. Sound pretty good? But think deeper. If there really were no problems to solve, if there were no challenges, if there were no losses at all, if everything was completely static, how long would that life sound good to you? How long would that life be interesting to you? When was the last time you played a game of tic-tac-toe? You know, after the age of five or six, is there really any interest left? When you play with a small child, you let them win because you know how it goes and you can see it, it's it's like a house that goes from the front door to the back door straight through. I mean, you walk in the door, you've seen it all. It's, there's no interest there. The interest to life are the twists and turns. The interest to life are the adventures. The interest to to to, to life is the risk. Any of you like to play poker? Yeah, a few of you okay. <laughs> Got somebody back there, you know? I know gambling and games of chance are not supposed to be spiritual, so we don't want to talk about those. But the point is they're games of chance for a reason. They interest us because of the risk involved. When I was in high school, we used to have these Saturday night poker games. Of course, we didn't play po- just poker. It was AC Ducey and Indian poker and all these crazy games. And a bunch of guys get, get together in uh, this one guy's garage, and you know, half of them were smoking these big, horrible cigars, these stogies that were no better than probably rolled newspaper. But at any rate, they were smoking them, and they thought it was really cool. And sometimes the pot would get up to $18 or $20. I remember this is back, I hate to say, in the 70s, you know, that was a lot of money, especially for high school guys. And everything would just sort of, the energy and everything would just go off the roof as the pot kept growing and growing, you know, and they're screaming and everybody chanting on every time you bet. The excitement was there was really something to lose. If you just play for chips, it's not the same. You know, you can practice your skill set, I suppose, but it's not the same. There's something about the risk. There's something about the adventure. And even though it hurts, and even though we don't want to feel it, what we are doing is we're wishing away the aliveness of life. If we try to wish away the suffering or the challenges, this is why James is telling us, count it all joy when you encounter these challenges, these trials. Because they are the ones that are going to produce the endurance that is going to produce the perfect result. We grow through the difficulties. We don't grow through the good times. doesn't mean we have to go looking for the difficulties. They will find us. But this is what he's trying to get across. And as he's moving on to the next verse, what he's doing is he's showing us that learning to accept life as it is, learning to see the purpose and the meaning behind the way life is and why the way life is, is the beginning of wisdom, which is right where he's going at, chap- at verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. All right. Now there's two principles that we really had to talk about between the Hebrew and the Greek. And we're the Greeks, in case you didn't know. We in the West are the, uh, the inheritors of Greek philosophy and Roman law. And so the difference between Hebrew thought and Greek thought is huge. And one of the things that we have to talk about is the difference between the intellectual and the experiential. We Greeks are very intellectual. We want to see everything as processed through our minds. We think of everything as mental. We think of faith as something that we believe we confuse it with belief. The Jews, the Hebrews, are all experiential. They're all about action. They're not about something that you think about. They're about something that you do. If I hold up a pencil, I don't have a pencil. Imagine I'm holding up a pencil. right? How would you describe a pencil? Long and skinny? Anything else? With lead? Graphite? Something? What's that? Oh, it's got an eraser. It's got a little knob of uh, rubber on the end of it. Maybe you can say it's yellow and it's pointy. You know, if you asked a Jew how to describe a pencil, what they would say, it's something you write with. That's it. I don't care what it looks like. They only care what it does. You ever see a description of Jesus in the New Testament? Now, as a Westerner, wouldn't that be the first thing you would want to know? How tall was he? What did he look like? What color were his eyes? What color was his hair? Nowhere is there a description of Jesus. They don't care. What did Jesus do? That's described in great detail. See, Jews are about function over form. We in the West are about form over function. And so we look at things very differently. Very differently. And the second thing that we do as Greeks is we look at the world through dual eyes. It's called duality. We break things into parts. Light and dark, matter and spirit, right and wrong, good and evil. We see these as separate, mutually exclusive forces that are always in some sort of conflict. But the Hebrews see everything holistically. They see everything as one thing. These are not separate things, they're one thing. And because of that, we look at time differently. We look at time as linear with a beginning and an ending and all these points in between. A Jew would see time as a circle, as a unity, as one thing, one moment just now. Those two principles are going, to func- are going to figure deeply in how we understand these verses, because if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach and will be given to him. So we're going to understand that as sitting on the couch and asking God for wisdom. "Please God, give me wisdom. I'll wait here until you do. You know But that's not the way it works. First of all, what is wisdom? Wisdom is applied knowledge, is it not? You know? Knowledge is just something that we think in our heads. Wisdom is when we take that and actually apply it to daily life and something changes. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. See how that works? No? (laughs) We always talk about... (laughs) We always talk about... Street smarts versus book smarts, you know? Someone can be super smart and do really well in school and they don't really know how to tie their shoes or balance their checkbook or do anything else that's really useful in life. There's a difference between the two. Wisdom is experiential. It cannot be given to you. I can't give you the ability to play guitar or ride a bike or learn a language, a second language. That's experiential. You have to do it yourself. Even if you learn all of the grammar of a second language, you still can't speak it until you've been immersed in the culture for a while and it becomes who you are. You start to think in that language. And it's the same thing with wisdom. God doesn't give us wisdom because we ask. I know what it says here. But you've got to think like a Jew. The Jews understand the code that's going on here. It's their language. It's their worldview. God doesn't give wisdom because we ask of him. It can't be bestowed that way. The word for ask, selu, in Aramaic, is related to selah, which is the word for prayer. See the similar consonants there? That's the dead giveaway. Selah, prayer, is to lean into to incline toward it's a hunting term we've talked about this before where you clear a space you set a snare you cover it back over you retreat into the blinds to expectantly wait for something to happen for that that trap to be triggered and then you spring into action and so prayer was like setting a trap for God think of it that way you cleared this interior space you set it up just right and then you retreated into your blind into your prayer closet and you waited expectantly for the connection. Selah, selu, as a related word, is not just asking passively. It's intense. It's like a police interrogation. It implies actual action and movement into. So asking God for wisdom is not just sitting and passively asking. Asking, in the Hebrew sense, implies action, movement toward. Asking for wisdom takes us on a journey and the byproduct of the journey is the application of our knowledge, which is wisdom. You see how this works? We still have to take the journey. It's not bestowed to us. And then God helps us endure through the asking, through the process of all of this. You've got to take what we think as Westerners and turn it around. Because we think it's passive. It's not. It's active. We think it's mental. You know, wisdom is just something in my head. It's not. It's something that we do and something that we know because of what we've done. We know not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. We know that. Why? Because we tried. It doesn't work well. It doesn't taste right. I can't get that one to work no matter what I do. It's okay. It's all right. But I hope you're getting the point here. Take it and work it the other way. Now take a look at the next one, doubt at verse 6, But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man not ought to expect anything that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Now this is a frightening passage, isn't it? Whoa! How in the world am I going to deal with this? This is a Western dilemma. Western dilemma. Not an Eastern dilemma. A Western dilemma. Why? Because we're assuming that doubt is mental. We're doing the same thing here that, that, is, was, that we were doing before. It's not really scary if you take a look at it that way. How will we ever know if we're free of doubt? How would we ever know that? How will we ever know if our faith is real, if our faith is actual? How are we going to know that? There's a great story at, Ma- at Mark 9. There's a man whose son is possessed by a demon. And he takes it to the disciples while um, Jesus, James, Peter, and John are up on the mountain of transfiguration. And when they come back, there's this big thing going on and they ask what's going on. And and uh, they say, well, this man brought his son possessed by a demon, but we can't cast it out. We don't know what's wrong. And Jesus says, ah, you have little face. How long do I have to put up with you or something like that? But he goes and he talks to the man and he starts to ask him, you know, how, you know what's going on with your son and how long has he been this way? And, and you know, you, it's, it's about your faith. And the man says, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. I just love that line. It's so human, it's so real. I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. We're trying to grind out belief. We're trying to just, if we squint just hard enough and look at it just right, maybe we can actually believe and we're hoping that something's going to happen. But it doesn't work that way. We think that doubt is the opposite of faith and that if we doubt, something's wrong. You know, Is there any life that you can imagine that doesn't have some doubt attached to it? I don't even know if it's healthy not to have doubt. But what I do know is doubt is not the opposite of faith any more than courage is the opposite of fear. We all know, I think, that courage is not the opposite of fear. If there is no fear, there is no courage. Courage is the ability to act in the presence of fear. Fear defines courage, makes it real. It's not real if there's nothing to be afraid of. Doubt and faith work exactly the same way. Faith is the ability to act in the presence of doubt. Doubt is what defines faith, makes it real. Without doubt, there is no faith. If you've never doubted your faith, then I can tell you, you haven't taken it seriously enough. You haven't pushed it to the limits to see how far it goes, to find out what lies on the other side. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Inaction is the opposite of faith. Because faith to a Jew is not what you think, like we've been talking about. Faith is what you do and do consistently over time. If you're not doing, then you don't have faith your doubt, if it gets so bad that it paralyzes you into inaction, now you're seeing what James is talking about here. Anyone who has doubt, anyone who is stuck, anyone who is sitting on the couch asking for God to do something for him shouldn't expect anything. Because faith is actually moving, doing something. Even if you're going in a direction that ends up being a dead end, it doesn't matter. Why was this man's son healed He obviously doubted, I believe, help my unbelief. But he brought his son to Jesus. Do you see? We can entertain the doubt, but we keep moving forward as if something is already true. And we experience the trueness of that thing when we do that. I know some of you have heard my skydiving story, so I'm not going to go into it in detail. But I went skydiving, loved it. And I did an accelerated free fall. So I was going out by myself. Eight hours on the ground of training all day long with that feeling in the pit of my stomach that was rising up hour by hour until they took me out into the barn and fitted me with the jumpsuit and the goggles and the helmet and, of course, the pack with the chute in it, the two chutes. And then we get into the plane, get up to 12,500 feet, two miles high, and I'm standing at the doorway. Am I going to jump am I not? Looking at two miles of air. You know, was there doubt? You bet there was doubt. Is this bedsheet on my back really going to break my fall? Come on, I've never done this before. How do I know these people were telling me the truth? How do I know I can actually do what they told me to do with a circle of awareness? And how do I know my altimeter is going to work? How do I know anything before I do it? Did I have faith? No, until. The moment we went one, two, three, and I pushed off. Then I had faith. I still had doubt, (laughs) but I had faith. And at that moment, you know, putting in motion something that's going to end at the ground one way or another, 120 screaming miles an hour uh, at terminal velocity or a nice flare and stepping into it, it didn't matter anymore what doubt there was or how afraid I was. All that mattered was to enjoy the ride, do what I was told, do what I was trained to do, and enjoy the ride, and I did. It's amazing what happens when you commit yourself to an action as if something is true. And if it's based here in Scripture, you got a really good bet. Someone really good packed your chute when you base your actions and your direction on what's here in Scripture. And this is what James is telling us. Don't worry about it. You'll know if you have doubt or not. You'll know if you have faith or not. Are you moving? Are you making choices? Are you leaning in to life? Then you're fine. And God will meet you in those places. This is what James is trying to get across. How about reward? Looking at James 1.12. Let's read it. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised those who love him. And we're getting back to endurance again. But once again, listen to this. It looks like these things are all separated in time. It looks like it's an if-then statement. If we perform here, if we do this here, then God's going to approve us. He's going to give us the brownie point and he's going to think nice thoughts. And then we're going to get a reward. We're going to get a crown. And all this is separated in linear time. But parasmos, the Greek word there that is translated as a temptation, is the same word that's translated in the previous verses, trial. Or in the first Couple verses we read as trial. It's the same thing. It's a trial, it's a testing, it's temptation. It's like a legal trial. You go into the trial, you have the judge, you have the jury, and you go through this whole process. And at the end of it, you're either guilty or not guilty, or I don't know, get a continuance. What do you do there, there Steve? But something's going to happen at the end of that trial, at the end of that testing. Think of fishing line. You buy fishing line, a 50-pound test. What does that mean? It means that somebody stretched it with a weight, you know, and at some point it broke. And the weight that it had right before it broke is what it tests out at. It's another process that goes through. It's the same thing here. These things aren't separated in time. They're simultaneous. We want to look at them dualistically. We want to look at them as linear time, as separated. They're not. Everything happens right here and right now as we go through the test, as we go through the trial, if we don't break, if we don't run away, then we're approved in that moment. And in that moment of approval, in that moment of breaking through, we will feel the connection, the unity with life lived in that moment, which is the reward, which is the crown. There's no waiting here. It's all right here and right now. And if it's not real, if it's not right here and right now, it's not real. What are we waiting for? Everything is always in the lived moment. This is the way that we can look at this from a Jewish perspective that clears up the problems. I hope that you see each one of these is pointing to the same action, the same thing. Even though we're looking at different issues, the way through is always exactly the same. It's moving out as if. It's leaning into. It's clearing the space. It's allowing the moment to be real. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to remember. And things are start going to be given to us, quote-unquote. Things are going to start to make sense to us. Look at temptation and verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is, attempt, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived it, gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So temptation and trial are the same thing. It's the same idea here. It's so important to understand that God is not tempting us. Nothing bad comes from God. He's going to say that later on. Every good thing comes from God. And so this tempting is this trial we move through. The unapproval that he's talking about here is the inability to go through the test. We cracked. We ran away. That's the unapproval. That's the temptation. In other words, the idea is, don't let us be diverted. You know? We say in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. That's a mistranslation. From the original Aramaic, is, do not let us enter into temptation. In other words, do not let us be diverted. Help us to be strong. Help us to continue on in the faith direction that we have chosen and not be diverted because things get difficult for us. That's all this is saying here. It is this idea that we can move through, that we can maintain our faith, we can maintain our balance. And then finally, in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He's saying there about as clearly as he can. Every good thing comes from God. Any good thing that you experience in life is connected to God. The analogy I like to use is every time you see light, every time you see heat, it came from the sun. There's only one source of light and heat in our solar system, and it's the sun. And so if you see it, it's from the sun. Yeah, but I just flipped the switch and these lights came on. Well, where do you think the power came from? It either came from a turbine, a wind turbine. It came from a water turbine. You know, It came from burning coal. Where did all those things come from? They're all a function of sunlight hitting the earth. If you really move it back, oh, i got a fire in my fireplace. It's nighttime. Where did the tree come from? <laughs> You know, everything traces its lineage back to the sun in terms of light and heat. And every good thing, every relationship traces back to God. Without any variation, without any shifting shadow, God pours out these good things on his people. This is what he's trying to get across to us God always precedes us wherever we go. Wherever we go, God is already there. He is the way of escape. This connects up. Paul is telling us exactly the same thing at 1 Corinthians 10.13. Look, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, God doesn't tempt anyone. This is just life. This is the way the life works. James 2 and 3, right? Count it all joy when you encounter these various trials and tribulations. This is life. This is the way it works. God's not doing this to you. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Back to endurance again. God had to precede us. God was already there in the place of our difficulty before we got there. And if we will lean in, if we will do that one thing, Lean in as if our faith is true. Lean in as if God is really there and we will find the way of escape. Brother Lawrence, who some of you have heard me talk about, who believed that God was everywhere. He was the cook in his monastery and he believed God was more present there even than he was in the chapel. He was everywhere and everywhere he went was a constant practice of the presence of God. He went so far as to say that if he found himself in hell, Hell would be turned into a paradise because God's presence would precede him there. Now, I know that's going to mess with a lot of your heads, but don't take it too literally. Just understand where he's coming from, that no matter how bad it gets, God has already preceded him there, and God is providing the way of escape, and if you're aware of his presence, it becomes a paradise. Every good thing comes from the Father of lights. This is what he's trying so hard to get across to us. You know, whatever we build, we never build from scratch. Ever. Whatever foundation you're trying to build right now, is it financial? Is it educational? Is it relational? Is it spiritual? You're never building from scratch. All we really do is move materials around that are already here because it's already here. Everything that we need, everything that we can possibly use in our lives has already been given to us, is already here. We're always building on God's foundation. Always building from what God has given us in his presence by preceding us wherever we go. Wherever we go, God already is. He gifts us with unity. He gifts us with connection and the sense of well-being. So why is life difficult? (laughs) I don't know. But I do know that it provides a stark choice a stark choice for us to choose between unity and connection and separation. The choice is real. And when we make it for real, we learn something about ourselves, about life, about connection. And that's the wisdom. The endurance of flowing through the difficult life is what provides the maturity, provides the wisdom, provides the freedom from doubt, provides the reward, in the moment, in this moment, in this kingdom moment, all these things that James is talking about flows from our willingness to move in and to endure through the difficulty to find the perfect result on the other side. Right here, right now. Always right here and right now. Let's pray. Father, this is such a difficult lesson. It's no wonder James put it first. Help our unbelief. We believe. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to realize that all we have to do is lean in and you are there. Help us to stop fighting the nature of life. Make friends with it. Shake hands with it. Accept it for what it is and then lean in and find you And your escape. That's what we need, Father. We just need to connect with you. Thank you for James' witness. Thank you for who he was that has given us a heritage now 2,000 years long that we can still read these words and see how they apply directly as freshly today as then. Thank you for all of the followers that have given us another foundation to build on. But thank you for yourself, Lord. Thank you for your love. Help us never to forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.